This is Peter Jonathan Robertson with episode 254 of the PJ Archive, which is a phone interview I did with the brilliant British writer and comedian Barry Cryer. Barry performed a huge amount on stage, radio and television, and he wrote for many great comic artists, including Dave Allen, Jack Benny, George Burns, Tommy Cooper, Ronnie Corbett, Bruce Forsyth, David Frost, Bob Hope, Richard Pryor, Spike Milligan, The Two Ronnies, and Morecambe and Wise. Barry died in 2022 at the age of 86. This interview took place in 2012. We talked about his life and career and a few of his favourite things, starting with his typewriter. Tell us the history of the typewriter and you. Oh, it's, uh, I can't remember when I bought it. It's many years ago. It's a Hermes 300. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've got all the gear upstairs in the study, you know, the computer and everything. But it's a strange superstition I've got. Whenever I do an after-dinner or a corporate, I do a poem. I do a relevant poem. Mm-hmm. And whatever they think of it, they know I didn't do it the night before somewhere else. It's specially written. You know, I get an email or whatever with details of the evening and the event, and I write a poem. And for some reason, it just makes sense, I type it on this old typewriter, and I always hand it over to the people on the night, and I say, look at that font. (laughs) And they just think it's typewriter font, you know what I mean? Yes. No, that was done on a typewriter. Yeah. Young ones reel back in amazement. (laughs) It's an old friend. It'll conk out one day. It's lost its upper case anyway. It's like E. e. Cummings, do you know that name? Yes. Who always uh, did lower case. Yes. Well, yeah. I, I'm a, a follower of E. e. Cummings, <laughs> lower case. <laughs> do you know which decade you bought it in? Must be 70s, I would think, Peter. It's been a, a trusty friend all these decades. Oh, yes, it's, it's going to peg out one day, but it's uh, tried and true. Do you have a nickname for your typewriter? Like I have a nickname for most things. That's a very good question. (laughs) Let's pretend I have. Okay. Tilly. Tilly. T-I-L-L-I-E. Tilly Tilly typewriter. typewriter. Oh. And what do you use your computer and laptop for then? Oh, well, that's just the usual stuff, you know, receiving emails and bit of receiving and transmitting and whatever. My wife does most of that, not me. Mm Mm-hmm. Does she kind of work for you in some capacity, your wife? She's officially, um, if the Inland Revenue are listening, (laughs) she is my secretary, yes. Oh, okay. No, but she does. She does all that. Yeah. And may we know a bit about your wife? Certainly. It's our golden wedding this very year. Congratulations. We celebrated it uh, a couple of months ago. Okay. Uh, 1962. We find it hard to believe. Uh Uh-huh. And... So the nightclub brochure, 1962, Winston's nightclub in Clifford Street, Danny LaRue, and that is where I met Terry rehearsing for that very show. And this brochure has a black-haired youth, which is me, top left, and bottom right is the beautiful Terry Donovan, who I met. very first day I met her was rehearsals for this nightclub show. And what was she doing? Was she a dancer? She was a singer. She'd been in musicals. She'd been in pantomime with Danny, and he said, what are you doing after pantomime? She said, not a lot. <laughs> and he said, come and be in my nightclub show. And oh. I'm very glad he did, because that's how we met. Oh, so I met, which is true. I met 
Terry the very same day I first met Ronnie Corbett <laughs> and tossed a coin and married her. I said, nothing personal, Ron. <laughs> so what's the key to the success of your relationship? We've never understood each other. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's hardly a joke. Right. We don't row, but we argue all the time. Mm. You never said that. Who? What? <laughs> no, when was this? <laughs> and we were in the car one day. She's the driver. And I said to her, we disagree about everything, don't we? She said, no, we don't. <laughs> you see old couples yeah. in a pub or a restaurant who get their meal or their drinks and they just sit silent. Yeah, that's it. And you think, I hope you're content. Or are you bored stiff with each other? Have you nothing left to say? You know, mm. We never stop. We're always at it. Oh, Wonderful. That's nice. And they say that w nothing turns a woman on more than a sense of humour. Is it well, true? That, it's a joke in the family, you know, domestic violence inflicting jokes on Tez in the kitchen. Huh. He copes very well. I try not to do it too much, but yeah. I always wanted to hear the, the latest one I've just heard. And then, more often than not, she says, was that it? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you spell her first name? Is it T-E-R-R-I? No, Y. Okay. It's a bisexual name. Teresa, you know, obviously, originally, yes. but it's Terry. And to all friends, it's Tez, T-E-Z. Right. And I'm, people never call me Barry now. I'm Baz, B-A-Z. We're Tez and Baz, have been for years. And how did you celebrate your golden anniversary? At a very unlikely venue. I don't play golf. I will say I don't play golf. I like women. <laughs> but our local golf club had a big marquee, and we had over 80, 90 people, friends and family. And it was wonderful, and... Uh, the kids got together and did a show. They'd written songs and they took the piss out of me and Tess. <laughs> and everybody contributed. And it was, a, oh, it was a glorious day. You said earlier that you write poems for big occasions and things. Did you write a poem for your anniversary? No, I, I left that to the family. Right. They, they write as well and everything. Mm. And our daughter Jack wrote a song for us, especially, which is very moving. No, I, I thought, no, that I'll leave this to the family and see what happens. And it was delightful. Oh, good. Whilst we're on the subject, I just want to ask you, why aren't there many successful women comedians? Well, there are mon many more now. Do you think there so? used to be. Oh, they're all over the circuit now. I'm delighted. But in the old days, they were a minority. But now they're, you know, the Miranda Hearts and the Sarah Millicans and Sue Kalman, the Scots. Oh, they're, they're coming through. It's great. Why do you think there weren't for a long time, though? Well, I've talked to mates like Joe Brand about this, and she said, it was always regarded as a male province. Women either thought they couldn't do it or they didn't want to do it. You know, stand-up comedy was a, a man's thing. Although in the old musical years ago, there were great women who did it. But no, there's a breakthrough. And Joe Brand said, we were all outrageous and gynecological. Well, she still is. <laughs> but she said, we only did it to get notice. Yeah. You know, talking about things men couldn't talk about. We've talked about your wife. Tell us about the children. Well, eldest Tony is a prof at uh, Metropolitan University, London. Yeah. Dave is a computer wizard, number two son. Okay. Uh, Jack, our daughter, great singer, but she had a, an attack of two children. <laughs> she <laughs> conducts choirs now. She doesn't want to be touring and gigging anymore. Okay. And youngest one is an actor and a writer, Bob with whom I did the book, Mrs. Hudson's Diaries. Do they all live quite nearby? Um, two of them do. Number two son, Dave, lives next door. 
in what was my mother's granny flat. Uh, eldest Tony lives less than half a mile, a quarter of a mile away in Harrow Weald, and Jack and Bob are in deeper Sussex. I imagine you're a very close family. Oh, yeah. Very tactile when we get together. We have regularly family gets together. And we're making it a regular routine now on a sort of monthly basis. How much did you hope that at least one of your children might follow in your footsteps? I didn't care. Neither of us cared. We just wanted them to be happy and do something they wanted to do. Right. And as it turned out, as you can tell, two of them did and two of them didn't. Yeah. So how long have you had this place for? 45 years. You must love it then. 1967. Yeah, it was... Uh, Ronnie Barker was living in Pinner in those days and we were house hunting. And he said, what about Hatch End and Pinner? And I said, where's that, Ron? <laughs> Real townie. We were in Maida Vale. And he had us up for dinner one night and drove me round the for sales. And then I sat with the guy, a musician, the next day. I thought, I've never bought a house. What do you do? Oh, you haggle. And I beat him down from 11,000 to 10,4. Oh. That is 1967. That was quite a commitment. And me being in an insecure profession, but I swung a mortgage. And we've been here ever since. It was built in 1900. It's a big corner house. And the foundations and the walls are solid, you know. Yeah. They didn't build in a hurry in those days. And this old place, you know, they built solid in those days. But you still need a draft excluder in the shape of a dog. Even if we didn't need it, I'm glad we bought it. It was bought in Pitlochry in Scotland. Ronnie Golden, an old friend of mine, we do the Edinburgh Fringe every year. We do rock and roll and gospel and blues and, and jokes. And after Edinburgh one year, we went to Pitlochry, beautiful theatre. And uh, a lovely little town, I don't know if you've ever been. No. Gorgeous. Okay. And we're just wandering around and saw these draft-excluded dogs. So we both bought one. He's called George. <laughs> it's George Draft. Uh, of course. to a, a film star called George Raft. And what type of dog is it? Is it a Dachshund, what, like they usually no, are? No, no. It's a sort of... It's grotesque because its body is long. When people come into the house, all they see is a dog's head poking around the corner, and they do a double take. It's sort of terrier, but it's got this elongated, obscene body, and people, it dawns on people, no, it's not real. Why are you so fond of it? Because we used to have dogs, and we haven't now, and I miss them. We're at our age now, and I'm around a lot. Terry get lumbered with all the dog walking and all that sort of stuff. We thought, well, we've done that. It was a great era, but we've done that. But I still get a bit nostalgic about dogs, so looking at the draft excluder. <laughs> eccentric me, certainly not. <laughs> what type of dogs did you have? Well, we, we like crossbreeds. We like the sort of Labradorish crossbreed, you know. Uh, you must miss their company terribly. Yeah, but I'm, I'm sort of adaptable. Yeah, now and again, I, I miss them when you walk in the front door. But uh, yeah. that was then, and this is now, you know. But when you see other people walking their dogs, do you find it... I get a twinge. I just might uh, start taking part-time employment as a dog walker. That's when I proposed to Terry. We were dog-walking five dogs in Hyde Park. She'd been to an audition and not got the job, and I was milling around, and may go. I said, I think we ought to get married. And she said, I'm not answering a question like that immediately. It's too important. I'll tell you tomorrow. And we were out with the dogs again the following day, and she said, the answer to your question is yes. And oh. I said, what question? What a start that was. <laughs> 
How many months had you been together by then? Oh, not that long, really. A couple of months or something. Hmm. And you said that you used to have four dogs and four cats. Do you have any pets now? No, no, no animals at all. Right, not even a goldfish? No. Right. You don't think you'll ever have them again? I don't think so. We just enjoy other people's dogs now. And the, <laughs> the draft excluder, the dog, yep. is on the table next to me. Okay. Stretched out, and I'm at the old typewriter. Right. And do your children have dogs? Uh, yes. Bob, the youngest, they've got two dogs, Charlie and Gracie. And what about grandchildren? Do you have any? Only seven. We've got a step-grandson, Tom, but he's one of the family. Okay. And how are you as a granddad? Well, you better ask them. I'm... One's own opinion of oneself is <laughs> worthless. <laughs> no, I think you should have your grandchildren first. Okay. It's so relaxing and great, because you can hand them back. Yes. So you enjoy the role, I imagine. Oh, I love it, yeah. yeah. It's great having a clan. And it's great having a clan, because loneliness is a terrible thing. You know, people who go home to four walls. I've only had that in the beginning, when I was in the bed sit, when I first came to London, you know. Mm. And that was soon rectified. <laughs> well, tell us about this brochure from 1962, if you will, please, Well, Barry. that's uh, a club called Winston's in Clifford Street off Bond Street. Okay. Danny LaRue was the star of the show, but he didn't own the club or anything. And this sort of rankled with him, because he knew he was the draw, that's why people came. And he always, uh, he would leave every Christmas to go off and do a pantomime, and Ronnie Corbett and I would write and do a replacement show. And Dan would say, I won't be back, and we thought, he will, and he always came back. And then one year he said, I've done it. And he got a place in Hanover Square, which became Danny LaRue's club. It was the the club in London at the time. It was just amazing. The people who came, I mean, Burton and Taylor and the Beatles and Armstrong Jones and Margaret and Judy Garland and Noel Coward. And, oh, it was amazing. I thought, if you don't know you're lucky, you don't deserve this. It was an amazing era. Mm -hmm. Is that Club Winston still going? No, that's long gone. It's a restaurant now. Right. And that's, uh, that's where we met. And uh, the show was about 1.15 in the morning. You'd leave home about midnight to go to work. And it was packed. It was quite a small club with a, a marble floor that we did the show on and a little bandstand, but it became the place to go. What was your main role in those days? Were you well, I was writing the show and also in it. So I was a sort of straight man, you know, to Danny and Ronnie, and I'd go on at the beginning and after the opening number and sort of warm the audience up. And a voice from the darkness says, this is satire, I suppose. And I said, no, it's nightclub filth. You should get out more. <laughs> Big laugh. And somebody said afterwards, do you know who that was? I said, no. I said, John Lennon. Oh, my God. And years later, when he was with Yoko, I was working on a David Frost show, and I'm alone in a little green room, Yeah. Peter, with John Lennon. And he looked at me. He said, do I know you? And I said, well, Danny LaRue's club. Oh, God. He said, I was out of it in those days. No, he shouted away. He was much more restrained, you know. It was the era of the Maharishi, and he was a different character entirely. So the late 60s? Yeah. Danny's club finally closed in 73, I think. Right. So one way and another, I was with Dan about 13 years. Yeah, and you've worked with so many fantastic artists. Do you have a favourite? Well, we all did. Uh, I've got an inflated reputation because people say, 
like you, you wrote for everybody. I say we all did. There's a whole gang of us. I never wrote alone. I wrote in partnership. Right. Always. Uh, the Kenny Everett shows, for instance, I wrote with the late Ray Cameron, father of Mike McIntyre. Oh, that's right, yeah. So I knew Mike when he was a little boy. And if you pin me down, you know, it's, it's Eric and Ernie, Tommy Cooper, Frankie Howard, Les Dawson, you know, it goes on and on. It's yeah. wonderful. But if you pin me down to one, it's the American chap, Benny, who I worked with twice over here, not in America. And he was just it to me. He played a mean, conceited coward and was a lovely man. Very generous and warm. And, but, oh, he's just superb. The audience knew what the joke was. And he loved other people getting laughs, which is very rare, I promise you. No, if, if I'm cornered, who was the one? Jack Benny. Definitely. Right, okay. Have you always preferred to be a writer rather than a performer, or I do you enjoy... as a performer. We didn't call it stand-up then. I was at the windmill of Piccadilly Circus yeah, in 1957 with a man called Bruce Forsyth. Oh, yeah. And I've never found out what happened. <laughs> it's sad, isn't it? <laughs> no, I started as a stand-up. I've been dogged by good luck all my life. I fell into writing. You know, I'd written a couple of sketches in what we used to call a review. Yes. At the Little Fortune Theatre. Danny LaRue comes in one night, so who wrote that? That's how I met Dan. Finished up writing his nightclub shows. One night, David Frost comes into Danny LaRue's club, so who wrote this? And as a result, me and Ronnie Corbett went into a show called The Frost Report. Oh, yes, yeah. I became one of the writers, and Ronnie was in it, of course, with Ronnie Barker and yeah. John Cleese. And which of today's crop of comedians do you rate most of all, or do you enjoy most of all? Well, I, I meet them all. You see, I like talking about the past. I don't want to live there. No. I do the fringe every year, as I said, and I get around a bit. Oh, there's so much talent about I mentioned the women. Sarah Millican and Sue Kalman and Scott, and oh, it, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, Rob Brydon, Ross Noble, Bill Bailey... Oh, the list goes on and on. Every generation's got talent. They're just, they're probably different in a way. They, they talk about life. Yeah. Observational. And a young stand-up said to me once, you've cracked it, Baz. You're the only one who tells jokes. <laughs> they love jokes when they're off stage, but they don't do them when they're on. But they, we all love jokes in life, you know. It's yeah. what, what it's about. But uh, I've got my niche. I'm the one who tells jokes and stories. Yeah. What do you think of these talent shows like Britain's Got Talent? Uh, I'm sick of everything's got to be a competition. Not to do with the, necessarily the talent that appears on it now and again, but yeah. why has everything got to be a competition? Elimination, yeah. rejection, humiliation. And I, I've been pitching unsuccessfully to the BBC through Friends, a variety show where it's just good people being good. Yeah. And I said, on the screen, I would like no judges, no phone-ins, just entertainment. And... One or two other people, Aid Edmondson and Lenny Henry, interviewed recently about something else, have both said what they miss on television is a straightforward variety show. Not a competition, no judges, none of that. Just good people being good. Yeah. A good mix of the young and the older, and you have a contortionist and a juggler and a magician. and You know what I mean? It's I do. I miss that too, yeah. I think it'd be great. Like the old Sunday night of the Palladium. Yep. And the good old days, the old musical, yeah. which is the link with the Tam O'Shanter. Oh, yes. Uh, tell us about the Tam O'Shanter. Well, I became a fraudulent Scotsman because <laughs> Barney Colan, the producer of the good old days, I'd done one act for him in my hometown, of course, the theatre, City Varieties. Mm -hmm. My girl's a Yorkshire girl and all that. And he said, I don't want that again. He said, do a Scots. I said, why? <laughs> he said, I saw you playing a Scotsman on telly last night. So I got the tam o and the kilt. So I became this 
Scottish stand-up. Bizarre. <laughs> and then years later, Graham Gardner and I played Hamish and Dougal on a radio series, and we still play them within, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Yeah. And it's just fascinating. Graham's half Scottish. I'm a complete fraud. <laughs> and we, we appeared as Hamish and Dougal in Glasgow once. I thought we'd get lynched. <laughs> they loved it. Oh. No stereotype. We don't. They're not mean or anything. They're yeah. too quaint older guys. You know. <laughs> they were premiered on I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue oh, within yeah. the programme in a round called Sound Charade. And we would start it with, yo, you'll have had your tea. And then go into doing a charade. And then our producer, John Naismith, said there's a series in this. And it was a modest <coughs> 15 minute, 11 o'clock at night to 11.15. And we did three series very happily. And we still playing them within the radio show yeah and you've joked about sort of being scottish and so on but what what is your you're from leeds originally aren't you yes yeah so you're a yorkshireman i'm a yorkshireman my mother was cumbrian my dad was a yorkshireman yeah tell us about your parents if you would my dad died when i was five so i get a real twinge if anybody says my father my dad yeah you know because there's few memories if you played me a tape of his voice for instance i wouldn't recognize it People were making 16 mil films in those days, but we, no film of my dad in motion. It's, it, there is a sadness in my life, you know, it's sort of the man I never got to know. My Name. mother was wonderful, bringing up me and my brother. What were your parents' first names? My father was John Carl Cryer. Right. He dumped the Carl because it sounded Germanic. <laughs> this was, you know, Second World War. He was in the First World War. Right. And my mother was... Jenny, but always known as Jean for some reason. Jenny Harrison Cryer. Her uh, original name was Yarker, Y-A-R-K-E-R, her maiden name. She went in 1986. And what was your dad's occupation? He's an accountant. I am the son of a Masonic <laughs> golfing accountant. <laughs> Explain the DNA. Oh. Tell us about the counterweighted bird that revolves. I was working with I haven't seen her for ages, and I think of her every day when I look at this counterweighted bird. Georgia Pritchett, brilliant writer. She's the sister of Matt, the cartoonist. Oh, yes. Matthew Pritchett, you know, Telegraph. Telegraph, yeah. Matt, who's brilliant. And Georgia and I worked on a series with Ronnie <coughs> Corbett called Small Talk up in BBC Manchester, and I popped over the road to buy some cigarettes or something, and I saw this counterweighted bird on a little stand and it, you know, it revolves, you push it and it goes around and waggles its wings and everything. Mm -hmm. And it's in the kitchen now. And every time I look at it, there are memories oh. of Georgia, of Graham Garden sitting in the kitchen writing with me, David Nobbs, Reggie Perrin and all that. Yeah. And it's just the focus that one, you were intrigued before when we spoke, you said, what, what's that? What do you yeah. Mean? Gives you memories. It does. That it one little thing on the kitchen table. What type of bird is it? It's, oh, what a good question. It's a sort of, it's a bit vulture-ish, I think. <laughs> it's beak. You know, it, it's counterweighted. It's brilliantly made. It was £1.99. <laughs> it's counterweighted, so the stand broke, so he's now perched on a salt cellar mm. by his beak, and you can just revolve him. I, I never tire of it. And what's it made of? It's solid. It's sort of baker-like substance. It's pretty solid. For the, it needed the weight, you know. So it's not a stuffed bird, then? Oh, no. No, right. it's a solid, glossy job. It, does it go down well with the grandchildren when they visit? Oh, them? yes, they love it. And do you have a name for the bird? 
No, it is. It's funny you're saying it's now Tilly Typewriter, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I've, I've named that. It's funny that. I never thought about that. <laughs> Call it John Bird. <laughs> yeah. And um, have you written about the bird? Has it been included in any of your sketches or anything? No. no. Right. It's just there for a bit of inspiration. It's just there. I just love it. And are you quite a collector of things? No, not particularly. No, but these are isolated examples. No, I'm not a collector. I'm a voracious reader, and I don't do much online reading. Right. The place fills with newspapers, magazines, and books. We're going to have to attack the study one day. I said, don't bother coming in the study, because you won't be able to get in. (laughs) So you're a bit of a hoarder. Yes, I mean, I'm accused of that by my wife, yes. Yeah, I imagine I you've got some... anything out. You never know when it might come in useful. Yeah, you must have some terrific mementos of things you've been involved in. Well, there's a lot of, there's about a lot of other pictures, obviously, on the study wall and everything, and uh, you just come across something like... Oh, I was given that brochure recently. Yes. That revived the memories of 1962, and, uh, yeah, you've only got to look at something and you're off. Yes. At my age, it's so many years to remember. Indeed. How many years in show business now? Um, I first paid 56. Right. 1956, 56 years in the business. My first paid job was at the City Varieties in Leeds as a stand-up. I've been in a university show. Somebody came up to Leeds to see somebody, not me, and he saw me telling jokes. I just got my first year results, which were not good. And he offered me work. And I, on one hand, I got an offer of work. On the other hand, I had my first year results. No contest. You know, these lucky breaks. I've been dogged by good luck. You know, the serendipity, that marvellous word. Suddenly you're in show business. I don't plan. I had half-baked idea of being a journalist, you know. <laughs> writing was in my mind, but not showbiz. Boy, did I love it once I got into it, because I was in shows with titles like... Fanny, get your fun, and we've nothing on tonight. <laughs> I was working with strippers. I was very happy. <laughs> and then to the windmill in London, strippers again. And yeah. we weren't allowed to move in those days. Yeah. Lord Chamberlain and all that. You've mentioned Ronnie Corbett a couple of times. Is he perhaps your closest friend in the business? He, together with, you probably won't remember, there was an act called the King Brothers. Them and Ronnie Corbett, yes, that 50 years. Ronnie and Annie Corbett, two of our oldest friends. There's a poster you mentioned at the beginning. Tell us about the poster. What, the, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Yeah. Well, it's me and Timbrotel and Graham Garden and Willie Rushton and Humphrey Littleton. I mean, I've only to look at it. You know, Humphrey and Willie are both gone. And uh, that's full of, just full of memories. Because the radio show's 40 years. And tell us about the radio series. Were you the one that created it? No, no, no. It was a spin-off from a show called I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. And Graham Garden and Bill Oddie were writing for telly and people were off doing things. And the BBC wanted another radio series. And Graham devised this one that didn't have a script yeah. and wouldn't need much rehearsal called I'm Sorry, I Haven't a Clue. Yeah. And it was not a success when it started. It was piloted and they said, oh, well, that's it. And then a man called Tony Whitby at the BBC... I wrote a piece in the Radio Times, Peter. Okay. Last week's Radio Times, all about it. Okay. No, and then they had this brilliant idea of Humphrey Littleton, who broadcast talking about jazz. Mm. Very unusual choice for a comedy show. And as I say, the pilot, the first series, John Cleese, Bill Oddie, and Joe Kendall, the actress, they left. They didn't like all this 
pissing about. Yeah. They wanted a script, and Willie Rushton and I were brought in. And that's 40 years ago. And have you had a favourite show out of all of them so no. far? No. Just love doing it. I'm going to Salford, the big Lowry Hotel, tomorrow night. Okay. After dinner. And the massive Lowry Theatre. We had a stage version of the radio show. We still have. And we did it a year or so ago. Last year, I think. Mm. And they wanted two shows, matinee and evening. Yeah. 2,000 came to both shows. We're like an old rock band. Yeah. <laughs> if, was, if the audience were our age, they'd be dying off, wouldn't they? But we get families and students. and Yeah. It's great. We're not complacent. We're just very happy about it. And how often down the years have you been unable to talk for laughter? Oh, quite a lot. Yes, I enjoy it. Alfred Littleton said my laugh conjured up images of a constipated hen trying to lay a rugby ball. <laughs> Radio's a strange medium because it's all in your mind. Yes. The pictures are better. And I was in a pub once and somebody said, so it made me laugh. And the woman next to me swung round and said, oh, it's you. And have you ever told a joke with a swear word in it? Yes. Once. No, only if it occurs once immaculately placed. Otherwise, it gets tedious. Right. So only once in your entire career? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm saying, if you do it, do it once in one joke, and you hope immaculately placed. But otherwise, no, it's not my style. I'm not, I'm not being censorious about people who do. I mean, it's very who does it. Some people who swear are very funny because they've harnessed it. Yes. And it's their style. Billy Connolly, years ago, I mean, everybody went, oh, my God, but the man was funny. May we know which swear word you used? Is it the F word you've used? Oh, yes. Okay. I was with Spike Milligan the last time I was with Spike at a lunch, and a man came up to Spike very sycophantically and said, may I shake hands with the greatest living Englishman? Right. And Spike said, I'm Irish. Fuck off. <laughs> now, I've told that to audiences. Yes. And it's attributed to Spike. It's not me saying it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the coward's way out. But do you think that too many comedians rely on swearing too much? I think what happened was a lot of them came to a hard school with a hard audience and they would get heckled and they swore a lot. And now they're with a different class of audience and they haven't changed the style. Right. Do you have a favourite joke you've ever delivered or written? Well, I was reminded of this last week. 1956, in the aforementioned student show, I told a joke about a man driving down a country lane who ran over a cockerel. And he was very upset, and he went to the farmhouse, knocked on the door, woman answered the door, and he said, I appear to have killed your cockerel. I'd like to replace him. She said, please yourself, the hen's around the back. <laughs> that is 56 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Do you have, like, a joke book like Bob Monkhouse used no, to have? I rely on the old computer in the head, and I scribble on bits of paper and cigarette packets. I just hope... Butterfly Brain, which I called the book I did and the show, I make connections all the time. I've got a marvellous memory for jokes and stories and a terrible memory in real life, as I think I've proved to you once or twice. But jokes click in. I think, oh, that reminds me of, and then I go A, B, C, D. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and you suddenly find you've got five minutes of stuff. Would I be right in assuming you'll never retire? We don't retire, the phone stops ringing. <laughs> My wife says, I've come to the reluctant conclusion you enjoy it. And I do. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very lucky to be doing something I enjoy. Yeah, and you mentioned Bruce Forsyth earlier, and of course he's Sir Brucey now. What about Sir Barry Cryer? Do you think it's about time? No, no. Oh, God, I couldn't walk into my pub again. <laughs> <laughs>